Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 208. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PetsPetsPetsPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. So we are here for the final part of our three-part uh, NHL off-season preview pod, where we go through every NHL team's off-season and give you our thoughts on them. And boy, do we have a doozy to start off. Yes, we are starting off with maybe the most active team. Certainly the team that made the biggest deal, in my opinion. We were talking about this before we came on. I think that the Eric Carlson trade to the Pittsburgh Penguins is the biggest trade that's happened since Weber and Saban. Um, I don't know that there's anything since that really compares to it. Weber, uh, Subban, and Hall Larson were the same day, right? So Yeah. I actually can't remember which one happened first because they were like 45 minutes apart. Yeah. Um, and we will have actually a moderately fun gloss on Hall for Larson. That one's not nearly as important in the Seattle section. But let's start with Pittsburgh. So Pittsburgh finished last year with 91 points. They were 19th in the NHL and 5th in the Metro Division, and they missed the playoffs. That's the first time that the Penguins have missed the playoffs since 2006, which was Sidney Crosby's rookie season. Um, just as an aside, because I did, I figured it was interesting to put this here, they were 31st in 5v5 shooting percentage. Perhaps not a coincidence. Let's start with some departures. Uh, Jason Zucker signed with Arizona a year at 5.3 million. Uh, I won't rehash this because we talked about this in our Arizona segment, but he's a good forward with strong offensive generation, even if his actual results in Pittsburgh were mostly not what they were hoped to be when he came over from Minnesota. Yeah, I think I was when when Pittsburgh got Zucker, I was like, oh, okay, this is a guy Crosby's going to turn into a thirty-five goal scorer every single year, mm-hmm. and just didn't end up really happening that way. No, it did not. A combination of injuries and struggles to adjust. Now, last season he had twenty-seven goals, which is certainly not bad, um, respectable showing from him. But yeah, we we were we thought he was kind of going to put them over the top. I thought. Or at least give them one last strong run of the cup, and it didn't happen. Um, defender Brian Dumoulin signed with Seattle, two years at $3.15 million. Dumoulin was previously a solid tough minutes defender, balancing out an offensive partner. Big, mobile, and steady. Dumoulin's pairing with Chris Letang was badly underwater in goals last year. It didn't look terrible by expected goals. So there's always the possibility he just got PDO'd to death. Um... Dumoulin's had a number of lower body injuries over the past few years that have slowed him down a bit. And I can understand why the Penguins, now under Kyle Dubas, might we add, uh, have decided to move on from him. But it wouldn't shock me if he had a miniature resurgence in Seattle. Uh, His awful season last year looked like it had a major PDO element. His pairing with Latang had a PDO of 976, which is very low um, to sustain over a long period. And it was uh, 1.017 before. I know that that's a couple of seemingly <laughs> not that different numbers, but that indicates a huge swing in the bounces going in for do, against you. Do you recall if it was mostly shooting or mostly save percentage that that atrophied? Uh, last it was season? a little bit of both. Okay, um, as as I recall. So we'll see um, if he regains some form in Seattle. I would note he's 31, which is older for an NHL player, but it's not a billion. So. I suspect he might have a little bit more in the tank, but wasn't working as well as Pittsburgh hoped. Uh, they did also put him on a pairing with Jan Ruda, who is also gone, um, and it failed pretty badly. 
in that case, there was no question of it being PDO. They just did not work. Um, Dmitry Kulikov signed with Florida, a year and a million. Third pair defensive defenseman type. Uh, Nick Benino signed with the Rangers. Decent fourth line center. He got a year and 800K. That's perfectly fine. Ryan Paling signed with Philadelphia, a year at 1.4 million. Again, a passable fourth liner. That's a little spicy based on his production, but his isolates are good. So we'll see if that pans out into anything. If it doesn't, Philadelphia doesn't really care. Um, Josh Archibald signed with Tampa Bay, two years at 800,000. Um, he's another passable fourth liner coming off a strong defensive year. I don't expect him to repeat. And I wrote that last week. Now, I really don't expect him to repeat it because he said he's not going to play hockey this year and this contract wound up being mutually terminated. So, yeah, that's the end of that. Finally, Jeff Petrie, Casey DeSmith, Jan Ruda, AHL forward Nathan Laguerre, and Mikhail Granlund all went in the massive three-team Eric Carlson trade, which is discussed below. So we'll start the additions and extensions, but we're going to start with that big trade that covers a whole lot of in and out. So this was a three-team trade, as mentioned, between Pittsburgh, San Jose, and the Montreal Canadiens. Deep breath. The Penguins gave up defenseman Jeff Petrie, with 1.562 million retained, uh, platoon goalie Casey DeSmith, AHL forward Nathan Lagar, and a 2025 second to Montreal. And they gave up Jan Ruda, who's like a decent defensive defenseman, forward Mikhail Granlund, who's kind of washed, and a top 10 protected 2024 first to San Jose for Eric Carlson at 13% retention. So that 13% brings Carlson down to 10 million a year for the next four years. Um, the Penguins also got amusingly named forward Rem Pitlick, uh, an ECHL forward named Dylan Hamaliuk, and a 2026 San Jose third. The Sharks also got Mike Hoffman from Montreal in their part of the transaction, by the way. I'm putting that there, but we'll discuss it more in the section for San Jose. Whew. Okay, let's break this down into parts, because that was a lot. Eric Carlson is one of the greatest offensive defensemen of all time. He's coming off a spectacular comeback season at age 32 that saw him set career highs in goals, 25, assists, 76, and points, 101. No defenseman had broken 100 points since Brian Leach in 1992. He is an all-time skater and passer and has terrific vision. He is very good. Um, last year was also more points than he'd had over his last three seasons combined. Mm -hmm. Uh he had 97 total in 158 games played. I don't think too many people expected this resurgence from him. I sure as hell did not. Um, and injuries have sapped away his play in the past to the point where I thought this contract was an untradeable albatross. Um, Agreed. And, and, I mean, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty stunning because, you know, Eric Carlson, you look at his career as a whole, and he had maybe... A, decade-long, roughly, run as clearly one of the best defensemen in the league. Then he fell off a cliff, and we're like, okay, well, that's that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, this started a little bit in the in the 2021-22 um, season, that his kind of effectiveness was was not, not as bad as people thought, but it's clearly not worth this contract. Mm -hmm. And he, of course, he's still, like, an injury risk um, mm -hmm. and not expected to get any better. And then last year, where he was, like, you know, as you said, maybe one of the best years of his career. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's a very, very odd aging curve at this point, and it's hard to know what to expect from him from here. Um, I think no one really expects him to repeat last season, right? It was a weird season on a, on a quite bad team. Mm-hmm. How is that going to map to a, to a contender? You know, I don't think people really knew. And the fact that, you know, he had those three years where he was just not nearly what he was expected to be impacts everyone's assessment of what he's going to be next year, right? Like the, the crazy thing about this is that, you know, just Eric Carlson, despite having such an amazing year, was not that amazing an asset. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is the massive price tag. Two, he's not very good defensively. And this has been a subject of debate. We were actually talking about the Eric Carlson wars before we started recording on this segment. There was a lot of discussion in the early days of advanced statistics about Eric Carlson, who drove play offensively at a rate that was almost peerless for an NHL defenseman at the time. Like, very few players have reached that level. And critically, one of the few defensemen that I can remember anyways, in, in, in you know particularly modern eras, who not only was great at finishing himself, but drove offense in such a way that he improved the finishing of his teammates when he was on the ice. Yes, and that's, I will add that, like, that's an established skill. Also, if you watched him, you believe it in five minutes. Like, he's visibly one of the best defensemen offensively, period, ever. Um, at the same time, he was never quite trusted as a defensive defenseman by his coaches, by the league at large, which probably cost him at least one Norris trophy. And by people who looked at his goals against numbers, which were often somewhat high. And Carlson went through his prime in an era where we were still kind of skeptical about shot quality. And now in the year of our Lord 2023, we probably have a more varied opinion of him. And we do believe that there are players who can influence the chances against to some extent, um, not just... Uh, that they happen on volume. And yeah, Carlson is not a great defensive defenseman. It doesn't mean that he's not a great player, which he obviously is, but there are some warts there. And you have to balance them in when you're just getting carried away with the fact that the dude had 101 points, which is goddamn bonkers anyway you slice it. Um, we were talking about his adjustment from the San Jose Sharks, who are quite abject, to the Pittsburgh Penguins, who are making a kind of last stand as a contender. Um, the Penguins are certainly a better team. But it is not out of the question that this goes sideways really fast. He's 33 years old. Again, a year ago, he was maybe not as bad as his reputation, because not as many people were paying attention to a Sharks team that wasn't doing jack shit. But he was certainly in decline. And certainly not worth his contract, even this retained... $10 million contract. Yeah, $10 million is a hell of a lot of money, um, as we're well aware. Um, and I might also add, when I talked about his career highs, uh, I could have said he also hit a career high in games played. He tied 82, which he'd done in the past, but he had struggled to do over the previous seasons. Again, injuries are cruel, and he's racked up quite a few of them, including infamously one where Matt Cook 
uh, severed a tendon in the back of his leg. Clearly, his mobility has recovered enough that he can still be highly productive and effective, but it's just something that's in the back of our heads at all times. Um, still, I think this makes more sense for the Pittsburgh Penguins than any other team in the NHL. Mm-hmm. I I agree with that. And, and again, also, this is... We'll talk about the Sharks a little bit later, but like you probably noticed with um when, when Fullman read out the trade, there's just like not... Pittsburgh didn't give up a heck of a lot here, mm-hmm. and the Sharks didn't get a heck of a lot. And part of it was just that there's not that many good fits for Eric Carlson, not just because of cap room. That's a, that's a big issue. But mm-hmm. you have to be a very specific type of team to to weather Eric Carlson, right? Reportedly, the Leafs were interested, and it wouldn't shock me if, like, you know, Dubas had that interest when he was on the team. Mm-hmm. And But it would have been, like, a very weird and awkward fit. Yes, um, very much so. And I think the thing about Pittsburgh is it fits in a couple of ways. Um, One, Pittsburgh has been good defensively most of the past few years. This year they were about average, but Mike Sullivan is respected as a very good defensive coach. I think that they can certainly put him in a situation where his defensive frailties are balanced out. Um, We'll talk about... Uh, one of their other acquisitions, which is clearly meant to help balance out pairings with Carlson and Latang. Um, but also, the thing, <laughs> the thing about the Pittsburgh Penguins is that Sidney Crosby is 36. He has two years left on his contract. Malkin is 37 with three years left. Latang is 36 with a whopping five. Once the end comes for this core, this franchise is going to bottom out hard. Realistically, they can only expect one or two more chances to truly go for it, after which this whole thing is going to burn down anyway. At that point, Carlson's 10 million AAV is mostly an accounting question. And since the future is a teardown anyway, term risk is ironically less scary for Pittsburgh, because the Pens are going to tank and will presumably be awarded the next generational player available. So... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this this is sort of just an interesting thing that the penguins are, are going through it, 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 where i don't know it's like it's like they're <laughs> i don't know the exact like financial term for this but they're they're basically like writing contracts that are going to have to pay out a lot and thinking well i'm going to be bankrupt then anyways mm-hmm. so i'm actually not going to have to pay this really yeah and you know that's a viable strategy in the nhl i do find it kind of fascinating by the way that the other end of this trade was the San Jose Sharks, who did a similar thing several years ago where they gave out massive contracts that I think even they suspected were going to age badly. Right. Um, maybe not as badly as they have in some cases. Um, but yeah, like they kind of knew, look, when the end comes, we're going to have a bit of a long, dark winter. Pittsburgh is now in the position of doing that themselves. Um. Let's talk about some of the other pieces in this trade. There were a lot. Rem Pitlick is a depth forward who spent part of last season in the AHL. He's 26. He would only have to rebound a little to be worth $1.1 million as a fourth liner. So neat. Uh, Jeff Petrie used to be really good. He was kind of an analytics hero in the back end. I remember specifically when he was playing for Edmonton. They never seemed to like him very much in their long, dark era of their own. Um, but he was one of their better defensemen. And he kind of blossomed once he got out of there. But last year, he had a tough season where his play driving fell off, and he's 35. 
Um, the Pens actually retained, as I mentioned, $1.562 million on his deal. And then Montreal retained on him again when they flipped him to Detroit. So Petrie is making $2.343 million for the next two years against the Red Wings books, which is a more reasonable amount as they kind of hope for a resurgence, even if it seems like it's blocking up their roster a little bit. Um, Casey DeSmith platooned with Tristan Jerry in Pittsburgh's net last year and seemed to outperform him. He was 2.9 goals above expected in 38 games. Jerry was minus 2.8 in 47. Despite that, the Pens made a huge bet on Tristan Jerry with only Alex Nedeljkovich as backup. So they better hope that Casey DeSmith was the right guy to let go. Uh, what are the chances that a Kyle Dubas team will have goalie issues? Can you imagine? Right. Uh, we'll talk a bit, a bit, a little bit more about, um, Jerry, um, you know, as, as we go along, but people sort of questioned aspects of Pittsburgh's offseason besides the Carlson trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, 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 it's, it's Yari actually, not Jerry. I'm pretty sure. And the, the Tristan oh. Yari, uh, tr- uh, like resigning or, or, or extension is, you know, high up on the list of things that people have criticized for, I think, kind of valid reasons. Yeah. Um, certainly it was an active off season, probably the most active of any team we discussed. And yeah, there were some decisions here that we'll have to get into. But first, I'm still clearing out all of the guys who were cleared out in the Eric Carlson trade. So Jan Ruda, he had a nice run as one of those steady lower tier guys who worked well with Victor Hedman in Tampa Bay. Uh, that went somewhat less well. This last season, when the Pens tried to do it alongside Brian Dumoulin. So we've confirmed that Brian Dumoulin is not as good as Victor Hedman. We're willing to make that hot take. On the air, where everyone can hear it. Uh, Still, Ruta's not like a terrible, quiet defensive defenseman. He's not a huge loss either. San Jose might hope to flip him down the line. He makes $2.75 million for the next two years. Who knows? Yeah, so looking at the Sharks' end of this a bit. uh, We we moved past uh, Mikhail Grandin. Yes, uh, Mikhail Granlund was brought over in a an extremely dubious trade. It rapidly looked like Granlund was kind of washed. He still got two years left at five million. Um, that's at the point where I'm not even sure it's realistic to hope that you can trade him at least before the trade deadline of the last year. At which point, who knows what's going to be left? It's not that long ago that Granlund was like. A productive player. Um, he had 64 points in 21-22, and everyone on Nashville ran hot that year for some reason. But it's not crazy to expect him to settle in as like the third line center in San Jose. I I don't know if this is true because like I don't know. There, there's there's a lot of players who um, can blur together. But I mm-hmm. feel like Mikhail Granlin has been acquired four times and been a disappointment every single time he was acquired. <laughs> He just seems like one of those guys who's, like, available, and you're like, yeah, maybe, if we miss out on good players. It, most it's like do. the Tobias Funke. Yeah. It's like, well, did that work out for anyone else? No, <laughs> but it might work out for us. Yes, it is very much like that. Um, I think Mikhail Granlin's days of not working out for anyone else but the San Jose Sharks are probably about over, just because he's now pretty much dead weight again. Maybe towards the tail end of this contract, he's produced something. But I think the Sharks are taking this on um, primarily for the purposes of balancing out salary here. And everyone knows that. Yes. Uh, uh, but, like, as, as you said, this is an important thing for Pittsburgh because mm-hmm. they got Eric Carlson and they did not add a ton of salary to do it between 
Carlson getting a bit retained between getting unloading Petrie, unloading DeSmith, unloading Grandland, and unloading Ruta. Yeah. Their their cap hit changed per cap friendly by a little over three million. Yeah, no, it's actually remarkable how cleanly they got out of this. And I think it speaks to the fact that the San Jose Sharks just weren't willing to retain very much. And so in order to make this deal even happen, they had to take back dead salary to facilitate it. I'm not sure they've come out of this super well. Like, I know that retaining means that it's on your books for four years um, for Carlson, unless he retires out of it, which no one expects. Um, but at the same time, it's like, well, you you took Granlin back, and that's almost $5 million in dead money for the next two years. I certainly think that this return could have been more interesting if they were willing to retain past 10 million like maybe into the 8 million range suddenly you have way more suitors i think for a player of eric carlson's caliber and maybe you get back some real assets because what they're coming out of this with really is a top 10 protected first round pick which i expect will convey this year and be like you know maybe 15th maybe worse that's very underwhelming for the reigning norris winner even considering his contract is kind of a near albatross so yeah yeah if i was in san jose's shoes here i would have prioritized getting back the single best asset i could basically yes or, or single mm-hmm. best collection of assets that i could like i want someone with star potential because they don't have that really on their roster currently yeah no i mean they've got a long way to go and right and you just look at the history of 15th to 30 overall picks and certainly you can get stars there right david pasternak was taken at 24 Mm -hmm. but you know outside the lottery it's it's a lottery yeah (laughs) it is a total crapshoot now it might work out for them but yeah this is kind of disappointing i will add the unwillingness to retain if that's what it is and i'm speculating here i would guess that that may be more from ownership than it is from Mike Greer, the general manager? I don't know. Maybe Greer is very averse to just retaining salary for that kind of term. But it's possible his hands were kind of tied on this one. Anyway, bottom line on it is the Pens have Eric Carlson. The end of this contract is very likely going to be kind of ugly. And even if it isn't, the team situation around it is extremely likely to be. But that kind of doesn't matter. This is it. For Rohan, for Ruin, and a Red Dawn, basically. They're going out um, blazing, and they should get one to two years, hopefully, of a really competitive team. That's what they're planning on, anyway. Let's see what else they did to guarantee that. Yes, all of that, by the way, was just the Eric Carlson trade. Pittsburgh also was, like, one of the most <laughs> active teams, if you exclude that. So this is going to be probably, like, 30 minutes on Pittsburgh total. Yeah, we got through one trade, and we're, like, 24 minutes in. So... They traded a 2024 third-round pick to the Vegas Golden Knights for center Riley Smith. Um, this is kind of uh, Vegas's end of being capped out and having to clear salary. And it's fascinating that Pittsburgh was taking advantage of it because we kind of conceive of Pittsburgh as being capped out, and they sort of are now, but they had a lot of space to work with. Um, Riley Smith, fresh off a Stanley Cup win and a 56-point season, is a solid all-around forward who can function as either a middle six center or as a left wing. Uh, Right now, some people are projecting he will be 
left wing to Crosby, which would be lovely for him. His isolates fell off a little last year, and he's 32 because the Pens are trying to challenge the Islanders for the oldest average age. But he should be a decent contributor, and the price isn't inordinate. Um, yeah, you mentioned here, he seems like a nose-for-the-net guy who would fit really well with Crosby. Yeah, uh, the, the thing with Riley Smith is like he, he's been a shot generator, right? Like he, he, get, he gets to the front of the net, he bangs away, he, he's able to get shots off, he's like active and involved with plays. Um, you know, th- those, are, those are traits that Sidney Crosby has, you know, made an inner circle hockey Hall of Fame career out of, you know, out of illuminating and, and, and making even better than they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a long lineage of guys who have done that. Uh, Chris Kunitz, the most prominent example, but guys like Pascal Dupuis or Connor Sheary, um, really his capacity to elevate those players is remarkable, and he's still got some of it. Um, they signed defenseman Ryan Graves, six years at $4.5 million. He's a big shutdown defenseman who shoots left, which seems like a natural fit for Pittsburgh now because they've got two dynamo offensive defensemen who shoot right, Chris Letang and Eric Carlson. Uh, He played tough minutes with New Jersey and had respectable results. To be honest, I don't know why people have been so critical of this deal. So I I, I think it's, I mean, it's the term for one, right? Like six years is just like spicy for, for Ryan Graves. And... Graves, I don't think is that good. He's like, mm-hmm. again, we, we have this like New Jersey issue of, you know, this was a very good team with like a lot of good pieces everywhere. Who was, who was, were the actually like really good players there? It can mm-hmm. be hard, hard to determine that sometimes. I think Graves is like fine, but yeah. you know, this is definitely like a long term uh, for, for someone who's, who's already, you know, 28. Yeah, it is. And I'm also factoring in the Pittsburgh Penguins do not care about term risk anymore. Yeah, so I think that's part of it. Like, I think this is a, a better deal for P- Pittsburgh than it would be for, like, a random other team. Because, again, mm-hmm. like, it really cannot be overstated how much Pittsburgh is planning on going broke anyways. And, like, mm-hmm. they will just suffer through the pain and they'll they'll pay for it. But, like, at a certain point, you know, whether you have... If you have five bad, you know, albatross contracts and you have ten bad albatross contracts, you're fucked either way, mm-hmm. right? So it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, if, especially if you can just wait it out. Um, I think worth noting. This is something people often forget, including us. Mm-hmm. You know, you you can't just pop down to the store and get the player you want in like a totally fungible manner. Like there there there's specific guys who are available. Mm-hmm. This was not an incredibly strong UFA defenseman class. In fact, I like looked through our notes and tried to see: Are there any other UFA defensemen who moved for like a price, like in this price here? Who I thought, oh, that'd be much better than Ryan Graves. And I couldn't really think of one. Like you'd have to go cheaper, or or, or get a guy and like hope you can promote him into a, a bigger role, right? Like mm-hmm. you know. So I think that is worth keeping in mind. Um, this is just a situation where, due to the sparsity of decent NHL defensemen on the UFA market, it's going to command more than than it quote unquote should. Um, but yeah, the, the the term on this is very likely to age badly. It's just it probably doesn't matter that much for Pittsburgh. Otherwise, this is like pretty coherent. Even if Graves isn't amazing, I think he's okay enough, and stylistically, he's a good fit for either Latang or Carlson. Yeah, and I think that's the big takeaway here is. Look, we're committed now. We are trying to win the Stanley Cup this season. We needed a guy who can balance out a pairing 
with an offensively oriented right defenseman. And when you factor all of that in, Graves seems to look like the best available fit. Like to take a random example for a defenseman that moves teams, you obviously would not get Damon Severson for this job. Um, not least because he shoots right, but also because he's not a stylistic fit. Um, Graves is the kind of guy who can balance out one of those pairings. I can envision a scenario where Ryan Graves briefly becomes like a, an old school kind of hockey hipster pick, like an Essel and Dell pick. Or where like, he's or like on John a, Marino last year. Exactly. Where he's balancing out like Carlson or something and his numbers look really good. And everyone's like, you know who doesn't get enough credit? Ryan Graves. And we'll get like 15 articles about how Ryan Graves doesn't get enough credit. <laughs> anyway, that is just my opinion. Uh, they signed center Lars Eller, two years at $2.45 million. Now, we talked about Eller in the Colorado segment, which was last episode because I did that out of order. Um, he's still a useful defensive third-line center who can play somewhat tough minutes to free up Crosby and Malkin. The offense is minimal at this point. He's 34. I wouldn't be surprised if Sullivan tries to use him in the way that the Leafs have used David Kampf. This is one of the most top six bottom six teams in the league. Hmm. Um, and it will become even more so when uh, Jake Gensel returns from injury and in, I think mid to late October. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like I, th- I think <laughs> Lars Eller will be playing the role of, of David Kampf and Noel Achari will be playing the role of Noel Achari. <laughs> yes, indeed. Three years at two million for Noel Achari. I really like Achari um, as a physical bottom sixer. He was Apparently, excellent for the Leafs last year. He was very good. And Kyle Dubas also liked Noel Achari because he's now acquired him twice. Um I think he should do well there at first. The third year of term is a little iffy for a 31-year-old bottom sixer, but you know the story by now. The Penguins are not super worried about things happening beyond the two-year horizon, I would say. Um, Matt Nito, or Nieto. I don't know. I like Nito. That's kind of fun. I think he's Nito. Two years at 900k. All right. Goaltender Tristan Yari, whose name I've been mangling. I think I've mispronounced so many names in the course of this podcast. It's like one of our defining features is that I can't pronounce anything right. Five years at 5.375 million. So Yari has been a somewhat volatile 1A goalie for Pittsburgh over the last four seasons, splitting time with Casey DeSmith in a platoon. Uh, Goal saved above expected thinks he was only really good in 21-22. But he's always had a respectable save percentage. He's never finished below 905 in any professional season where he played 20 games. I'm including the AHL in that. Um, the Pens have decided he's the guy and, you know, goalies, right? If they're wrong, this all falls apart very fast. And, you know, I've talked about the two-year horizon headline. If Yari cannot be at least like a respectable starter, then the horizon is no. Yep. And they're, no, they're never going to be good. Yeah, so I think this is the other move besides Graves that people have really questioned. Mm-hmm. And I think there's good reason to question it here. Look, goalies are really random, but just mm-hmm. based on track record, this doesn't seem like the smartest bet in the world. Again, there's the issue of what are the other options, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, you, you, can, you can try and acquire other goaltenders. As we've covered with other teams, when you are in the 3-4 I guess even $5 million price range for goalies, you're not getting a sure thing. It just doesn't exist. A sure thing mm-hmm. arguably doesn't exist for goalies outside of that, but you're definitely not getting it for $4 million or $5 million. Yeah, um, very much so. And then there's the question of, okay, what do you do with that money? Now, Kyle Dubas, with the Leafs, showed a willingness to kind of roll a couple of dice 
each year where he would get guys in this mid-level range um, and just see who worked out. And there were ups and downs, as we can all recall with that strategy. It also has some notable successes. Like last year, he got Ilya Samsonov and Matt Murray. Um, Matt Murray, I think you can say, did not work out, primarily due to injuries, which I have to say was foreseeable. Samsonov did. And that's how it goes. With this, the Penguins have decided they need to buy a certain amount of certainty, or at least that they hope that's what they're doing, in terms of a guy who is probably going to be at least respectable. I think he probably will, but as we've mentioned, in this price range, you can't guarantee that. And if this bet goes wrong, there's not a lot behind him. We will talk about that in the next little blurb. But they're really counting on Yari to hold the fort here, and he's kind of the pin holding up the map, as with all goaltenders. Without goaltending, you're not viable. Yep. And backing him up is Alex Ndelkovic. Uh, one I year, he- $1.5 million. Mm-hmm. Um, He was acquired by the Red Wings from Carolina with great fanfare two years ago. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Ndelkovic slogged through two seasons and played most of last year in the AHL. I am a little surprised he still commanded the year $1.5 million after that. I would expect him to look somewhat better behind the Penguins, uh, who Sullivan usually coaches to defensive competence, but we'll see. I'm also curious as to how many games Nedeljkovic is supposed to play, because maybe that AAV means they are expecting him to be an active backup, and Yari has only hit 50 games once in his career in the NHL. So... Maybe they're counting on a lot of starts from Delkovich. If so, I don't think that's a very good idea. <laughs> um, but anyway, goalies, right? Yeah. So yeah, if, if you want to point to a weakness, besides the fact that they're all old as shit, um, the goaltending for Pittsburgh could undermine them. Uh, also worth noting, the Penguins have signed a bunch of PTOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most notable among them are Mark Pissick and Colin White. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Normally, expectations for PDOs are pretty modest. That said, these are guys who have been useful contributors in the NHL in the past. Um, you know, we talked a lot in our last episode, especially, about going long on term for good young players and how that almost always works out. And Colin White is the most obvious example where it didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, that doesn't mean that he can't be worth something on a league minimum. Right. Um, if, if he just... He's had points in his career where he's been a solid third liner and if you're a third liner for league minimum you're you're adding actually like a reasonable amount of value and he's not old he's 26 mm-hmm. and i think a lot of teams including Caldubas leafs but certainly not unique to them um have done this thing now where they stimulate lots of competition in training camp the penguins first of all barely have any prospects but there is no priority other than winning this year so it wouldn't surprise me if one of these guys wins a job and a contract out of this, if they turn out to have something in the tank. Um, and it, they might be a useful contributor. Um, other thoughts. I don't know if I've hammered this enough, so here I am again. The Penguins are old. They are not the oldest team in average age, but they're old in terms of their core. Virtually the whole top nine is over age 30, except for Jake uh, Gensel who is out until at least November, probably, recovering from ankle surgery. Uh, the Pens have the advantage that their best players are coming down from spectacular Hall of Fame heights, 
But that doesn't change the fact that the most important skaters on the team this year are all in their mid-30s. Just to recap that, Crosby, 36, Malkin, 37, Latang, 36, Carlson is actually kind of a spring chicken at 33 compared to those guys. Um, there's a chance that the end comes for them this year. I'm not saying that that's what I expect to happen, but it would not be the craziest thing for the cliff of age to reduce the value of one or two of those players to basically nothing. And if that happens, that's pretty much it. Like they can't really survive that. Um, at least not and to be anything more than first round fodder. Um, they could also be just okay and then submarine by goaltending, as we mentioned. And even if everything goes well, they're going to need a real uptick from this group to seriously contend. I'm not sure they are a serious contender. Like, if these Penguins end up in a matchup with, say, Carolina or New Jersey first round, I mean, we'll see what happens this year, but I doubt I'm going to be betting on the Penguins to win that series. Um, still, yeah, I don't think this team is going to get home ice in the playoffs. But at the same time, I will give Kyle Dubas this. I said this again and again about his time in Toronto. It's not perfect, but it makes sense. Um, the things that he did are coherent to me. Uh, he took on massive term risk because his term risk is basically guaranteed. So as we've said, look, it's all going to have to burn down at some point anyway. You might as well do everything you can for one last ride. And if you look at it in this context, pretty much all of the moves align with that goal. And to some extent, it's better to have like an imperfect plan, but you, that you at least execute consistently than to kind of have a grab bag where it doesn't all add up. Um, right. Like I, I think in, yeah. in comparison to a team like Nashville, mm. again, not a high bar, but Pittsburgh has a pretty clear idea of what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. As you said, I don't think they've executed perfectly, but it's coherent and that gets you, you know, quite a long way. And also this is not the hardest job in the world to have at this point. I, like, if, if you say, okay, I don't care about the future. You can be kind of single minded and say, okay, I'm trying to maximize the next two years. That's, mm -hmm. And that's not that difficult. No. Um, this is sort of the situation you can get in in like franchise mode in NHL where you say, I'm going to turn the game off in a year or two anyway. So, meh. Now, Kyle Dubas, I think, anticipates being around for a rebuild. Like, you know, he had a conversation with ownership and everything. They apparently like him. And so I think he also does anticipate being the GM for the transition phase. But if you look at... The situation he's in, which is just, we are all in 100%. There aren't too many other decisions that I think would have done better. Like, Carlson was the biggest big name right now upgrade, and they got him for a pretty minor price. So, yeah. Now, I mean, you can still say, look, Pittsburgh has been clinging to this for years and years. And this is going to probably be another year where they don't have a first round pick. So <laughs> you're not getting started on the rebuild, which is going to be long and dark when it comes. But look, how often do you get Sidney Crosby? How often do you get Evgeny Malkin? I don't blame them for saying like, yeah, let's cash in all the chips. Um, I should also add Dom had the Penguins 
as the third most improved team before they unloaded a bunch of Flotsam for the Norris Trophy winner. So they certainly look to be a lot better on paper than they were last season. Some of that is that they're unloading heavily negative players, and I'm always a little skeptical of that, but still they are clearly improved. Woo! Okay, how did we do? We got through one team in 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that will probably be the longest one of this whole series. Yes. So, okay, conveniently enough, the next team up is the San Jose Sharks. All right, another 15 minutes on the, on the, <laughs> on the San Jose side of this trade. Yeah, let's talk about the Carlson trade. Um, the Sharks last year finished with 60 points. They were 7th in the Pacific and 29th in the league. You will not be surprised to hear they did not make the playoffs with those results. Departures. Did I mention that they traded Eric Carlson to Pittsburgh? So, yeah, I've mostly talked about this. I won't rehash it. I will just say uh, I don't think this was a great return for San Jose, but it was a weird situation, and I suspect two factors uh, really limited their capacity to get a return. One, ownership's willingness to retain salary, and two, Carlson's no-movement clause. Um, Carlson had been on the market since at least last trade deadline and was only traded August 6th. There just may not have been a ton else out there. We know uh, Carolina was in on him because they've said so, and they've also said that their offer was just not good enough, apparently. Um, that strongly suggests that Pittsburgh beat the market with what was not a great offer. Um, so make of that what you will. Carlson at $10 million, as good as he is, is a serious risk for most teams and a lot to absorb. Uh, departures. James Reimer signed with Detroit a year at $1.5 million. Uh, Reimer wasn't very good for San Jose last year, but neither were most of the players on the team, so whatever. Uh, Steven Lorenz traded to Florida. He's the fourth-line guy. Uh, additions and extensions. Uh, as we mentioned, they got Mikhail Granlund in the Carlson trade. He's got two years left at $5 million, which, you know, no one wants him at other than as a salary dump. It's probably a good place to note, by the way, the Sharks have two of their retained salary slots locked up in Carlson for the next four years and Burns for the next two, which means they can only retain salary on one more contract over the next two seasons. That might limit their ability to unload some of these guys at a deadline or to act as a broker um, in some sort of three-team trade, which we've seen before. In Granlin's case... No one is taking him on this contract without retention right now. Possibly his career is just going to kind of peter out like this. Mm -hmm. uh, they got Mike Hoffman in that Carlson trade, believe it or not. Although, obviously, Pittsburgh was not involved in that portion of it. It just went from Montreal to San Jose. Um, Hoffman gives you a good left shot on the power play, a point every two games, and a 20-goal pace, and not much else. But that's enough if he does it again this year that I would expect he'll be flippable at the trade deadline for like a third. Yeah, there's always like, usually I think it's a low end playoff team that like wants to juice its, you know, its second its second power play and like get a bit more secondary offense. Like I feel Hoffman is sort of an attractive player to those teams. Yeah, uh, especially if you feel like you're good 5v5, but maybe your power play isn't everything you want it to be. You can be like, well, we'll sort of plug and play him a little bit. Um. If the Sharks use their remaining salary retention slot on anybody this year, I would guess it's going to be Mike Hoffman. But we'll see. As mentioned, they traded uh, Lorenz and a fifth for Anthony DeClaire, who's making a year at $3 million. Um, DeClaire is a speedy, dangerous offensive winger who was hit with some bad luck. 
He missed most of last year with an injury and took some time adjusting, but he's unquestionably talented. Uh, the best case scenario for all involved is that he does well with a big opportunity in San Jose, gets flipped to a contender at the deadline, and then goes on and signs the big contract that he's never quite gotten so far. Yeah, I mean, um, Duclair is kind of an all-offense, no-defense uh, winger. Mm-hmm. So he'll have the opportunity to put up some big points here. We'll see, we'll, and we'll see if he does. Hope, hopefully, hopefully he does. Like he's, As you said, he's had an unfortunate last couple years where he's been effective when he's played, but has had some pretty brutal injuries. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that's uh, too bad for him. Like, I'd, I'd really like to see this work out for him because it seems like every time he gets going, if there's an injury or there's some sort of issue that holds him back. Um, but yeah, the Sharks don't have a lot to do other than give him opportunities. So, yeah. Uh, they signed defenseman Kyle Burroughs three years at $1.1 million. He's a determined third pair defenseman, you know, real workman-like type, rode the buses on his way up. The Sharks, I guess, are hoping his work ethic and competence are contagious. Uh, and finally, they traded a sixth for goaltender Mackenzie Blackwood and then signed him at two years at $2.35 million. A few years ago, the Devils were hoping that Blackwood would be the goalie of the future. But injuries, including an MCL and a groin injury, derailed him. And by playoff time, he was third on their depth chart behind Vanacek and Akira Schmidt. Um, a fresh start in San Jose would be good for him. And maybe the Sharks will find something there. There's only so much he can do to save the situation. This is not a good team. No, they are a bad team. Um, they're a very bad team. And so, as with any team, moving to the other thoughts section, what excitement there is comes from prospects. And William Eklund, drafted 7th overall in 2021, is the current hope for the Sharks. He's already played 17 NHL games over the last two seasons, but this should be his first full year. He might have gotten more time last season, but he had a dislocated shoulder. Uh, he's 5'11", agile, and dangerous offensively. The descriptions I've heard of him make me think a little bit of Mitch Marner, to be honest. Um, I haven't seen much of him myself, so I'm going off what I read. But yeah, that'll be kind of the thing to look for if you're a Sharks fan this season. Uh, it would not be an enormous shock to me if the Sharks were the worst team in the league this year. Like, it's always crowded at the bottom, but like, they're right down there. It feels like that would be a good thing for them. Yes, it would. They need a foundational draft pick. Um, they were already pretty bad last year, and they traded Timo Meyer at the deadline and then Carlson this summer. In their absolute best-case scenario, they become competent defensively based on bets like uh, Ruta, Burroughs, Mark Eduard Vlasic, and just hold down the fort with conservative play. But even then, I think they miss the playoffs. Um, that said, I, th- <laughs> I think the last couple years we've been really bleak. On San Jose when we did this segment. You can start to see a little light. The cap sheet isn't as dire as it was before. I don't think that they're going to really strain themselves to unload, say, Mark Edward Berlasic, who has three years at $7 million left, or Logan Couture. Yeah, they've waited out would... the worst on these guys. And I, I think it has to be said, this is not a situation where San Jose has gotten themselves into this horrific mess through complete mismanagement. They're just a disaster of a team. They were contending mm-hmm. for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And they made a bunch of bets to try and get the Stanley Cup that eluded them. It didn't work. They got close. They got to the finals against Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work out. But like this is a very, very respectable franchise who has accomplished a lot more in the past 15 years than, I would say, 25 other teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're a victim of the fact that we evaluate success in the NHL by did you get a cup or not. 
and they didn't mm -hmm. and that's a fact but they did kind of everything they could and even if you look at the deals that they did take on they were all for players who were at least very good at some time you know it's not like you're seeing a lot of bets where you're like oh that was obviously really stupid they took a lot of term risk because they were trying to win now again that's what pittsburgh is doing so yeah uh if eckland william smith and philip bystead who are a couple of other draftees um start making real strides the sharks might team be a team to watch in maybe two years right now they're probably going to pick in the top five and that's for the best okay the seattle kraken had 100 points last year. Fourth in the Pacific, 12th in the NHL. They lost round two to Dallas in seven games. Very nice season for the Seattle Kraken. Mm -hmm. uh, departures. Daniel Sprong signed with Detroit a year and two million. I won't go into that in great detail because we talked about it under Detroit. But he's a strong skater and an offensive player who had a breakout 46-point season with Seattle. I am a little surprised they didn't keep him. But as we've mentioned it's not clear why Sprong moves around as much as he does. Yeah, he just seems to bounce around, and coaches just don't seem to trust him as much as they quote-unquote should based on what he does on the ice. Yeah, and so we'll just have to leave that in the mystery box. All I can say is that based on what he does do on the ice, a year and two million is very reasonable. Um, Morgan Geeky signed with Boston, two years and two million. Um, the Kraken actually clobbered teams with depth last year, and Geeky helped. I don't know if I lament losing him at this price. Um, Brian Donato signed with Boston two years and two million. That's basically the same situation as Geeky. Um, Carson Soucy signed with Vancouver for three years at 3.25 million. He had a good season with the Kraken. Didn't especially play tough minutes, but they seem to have used him as a successful sixth defenseman. If that's what they think he is and can be, this is a bit rich. If he was ready to be promoted, they might regret letting him go. Uh, we'll see how that pans out. Uh, additions and extensions. They signed uh, forward Keller Yamamoto. One year, $1.5 Yamamoto looked like he might be like a quasi-star or very good complimentary player for a little bit when he was riding shotgun to Leandro Seidel. The, I, I, this lives like rent-free in my head, but like there were definitely like Oilers fans. And look, I'm not crapping on Oilers fans here. Every fan base has yeah. their own set of like delusional idiots. Who, who were like, <laughs> Yamamoto is like better than William Nylander after, after his first powerful season. Yeah, um, he had he was like point a game for like 27 games or something. Yes, and this is why you don't overreact to 27 game samples. Yes, and everyone wants to do it every single time, but this is oh, sort and, of and what And we've happens. done it too, right? We've like, done it too. Like we, we were way too high on Kasperi Kapanen after he had oh, like yeah. a strong first 30 games um, the year that Nylander didn't have a contract to start the season. Casperi right. Kapanen will always be a mystery to me why he's not better than he is with I, his skill set. He, he, I think he just doesn't think the game well enough, I feel. Like he, yeah. yeah, like his passing and his ability to use his teammates just never developed. Yeah, I, I stand by my previous assessment of him, which is that he's he's the kind of guy on a third line where he looks like he should be promoted. And he's the kind of guy when he gets promoted, you're like, why isn't he any better than he was on the third line? Um. Anyway, enough about that. Um, Yamamoto, I still think, has some potential as a good little zippy winger type. We used to call them ZLWs in the PPB chat, like the zippy little wingers that Kaldubas seemed to love drafting for a while. 
At this price, I think there's a lot of upside. I agree. If he gets a significant opportunity in Seattle and breaks 40 points again, this is a steal. So, yeah, I think they might have got him at the right point in his valuation cycle. Um, by the way, I don't know what Detroit's overall plan is. Um, they still have a bit of cap space. I think they should have just kept Yamamoto. It's weird to me that they didn't, right? So that they acquired yeah. him with uh, with Clem Costin. Um, yeah. And, and just, like, kind of let Yamamoto go. So, or, or maybe they, even they, bought him out. They bought him out. Yeah, they bought yeah. him out. And so. Now, the buyout wasn't expensive. No, it's an like, under 25 so buyout. So, so you only pay one-third instead of two-thirds. Exactly. So it's it's not a significant amount of money. It's just, like, I would have decided to see what I had in yeah, Yamamoto for I, a year. I agree with that. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. Now it's Seattle's uh, opportunity. Uh, they signed forward Pierre Edouard Belmar a year at seven hundred and seventy-five thousand. He's a famously tough fourth-line center, but he looked to be in decline last year. And at age thirty-eight, it's possible he's fallen off the cliff. The only real risk here is that the coach is going to overplay him. Mm-hmm. Just as an aside, over the past six seasons, Belmar has spent two seasons each with Vegas, Colorado, and Tampa. But he was never with any of them the year they won the cup. That's kind of sad. That's that's rough. Yeah. And it's not like Corey Perry where you're like, ah. You know, like <laughs> I actually feel bad for Bill Maher. Yeah. Um, they signed defenseman Brian Dumoulin, as I mentioned previously, to use the $3.15 million. I think he's a rebound candidate. Um, Daily Faceoff projects him as balancing out a third pair with Justin Schultz, which seems like it would make sense. That might be a bit spicy for a third pair defenseman, but if they kind of keep an even balance between their pairings, it might make more sense. And Seattle, as with Vegas before them, has a lot of depth to kind of ride. Um, so they extended defenseman Vince Dunn four years at $7.35 million, which probably seems a little bit hot if you haven't been paying too much attention to Seattle. Um, but he broke out last season with 14 goals, 50 assists, and 64 points, and he got top-pairing money out of it. He seems to be worth it as a strong offensive defender with a big shot, and he and Adam Larson formed a strong top-pairing last season. As an aside, Adam Larson probably seems like he's older than he is because of the uh, Taylor Hall trade. He's only going to be 31 in November, and he hasn't actually missed a game in his past two years with the Kraken which was a big issue for him previously. He was really struggling with injuries. And so, not that this is a defense of Peter Chiarelli, but if you offered Hall for Larson today, the team offering Hall would have to add. Seriously. Uh, just on so. bid stun for, for a second. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, th- I, I agree. I think he's a quite good player. Mm-hmm. Again, a rare defenseman. You mentioned his big shot. He, he actually seems to have some finishing talent. Um pretty uncommon for for a defenseman and he, he he was a guy when he started out in st louis he like destroyed third pairing minutes and at the time travis dermott was doing the same thing in uh in in toronto but scouts always seemed much more confident that dunn would translate to higher positions than dermott did mm-hmm. and, and that ended up happening it took a maybe a little bit more time than people were expecting oh he's not old by any means he's like 26 27 um but yeah, Dunn's blossomed into into a very good player and is one of the better expansion picks to, uh, from from Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess that's a, a good statement. We talk somewhat cynically about the Isle of Shelter third pairing defensemen. Um, every now and then they do make the jump up. 
that's what makes it so alluring, mm-hmm. right? If you if you can find like because top defensemen are so hard to find, so if you can pluck a guy out from you know lower in the lineup and suddenly he's you know getting you great results in real minutes, like that's just a huge value add. Yeah, absolutely. And you know before this he was making four million a year, which is a huge discount for the quality of play he provided provided for them. Now he's going to be somewhat more fairly paid, but yeah. Great pick by Seattle, as we mentioned. Um, they extended defenseman William Borgen, two years at 2.7. He's big. He's reasonably mobile. He's defensively oriented. Uh, he and Jamie Alexiak form a defensive pairing for the Kraken, although Alexiak is kind of the anchor. Uh, but Borgen is the right-hand defenseman on the pairing, so he's a little bit more special. Uh, other thoughts. Matty Beignets, uh one rookie of the year, 57 points. He is expected to be Seattle's franchise center going forward. Uh, he's an all-around strong offensive talent, even if his isolates don't reflect it yet, and he's probably going to be the top player on the Kraken for years to come. Just, that's really great for them, and they should be really happy. Rare rookie who was, like, genuinely quite good defensively. Mm. He's, a. Uh, he looks like a franchise player, probably. Like, he's going to be really good. Um, right, yeah, I, I don't think he'll get into the, you know jack hughes austin matthews level of like guys who in a given year might could challenge mcdavid and have a possibly better year than him yeah but i think he'll be a very very good player mm-hmm. um chain wright had an up and down season literally he wound up in the ahl for a little bit um but yeah he uh is still quite young uh, and hopefully the pressure should be off a little bit the kraken don't need him to come in and be a franchise savior um, if he matures into a reliable second line center behind Matty Beignets, um, the team should be in good shape. Am I mangling his name too? I'm pronouncing it like it's French Canadian. It, it's Beniers. Beniers. Yeah. I don't know. Like I watch games with mute on. <laughs> I'm going to be honest and listen to music a lot of the time. So there's not a lot of opportunity for me to correct my bad pronunciations, which is about a, about a bit of my problem. Yeah. Anyway, with with Wright, um, yeah, like he didn't play much in the NHL. There was some discussion like, oh, is Seattle handling his development well or poorly or whatever? But from what I saw of his AHL numbers, like they were quite strong for for someone of his age. I think it was like nineteen or eighteen. Mm-hmm. So th- there's nothing that has really convinced me that Shane Wright is not going to be, you know, a, a good NHL player. Yeah, and I think. The truth is, is that if he had gone first overall, first of all, he'd be in Montreal. But second of all, there would be more of an, an expectation that he is that kind of franchise player like Beniers. Um I think at fourth overall, maybe he can just kind of be a good player. Like I think about how differently we would talk about Alexis Lafreniere if he'd went, say, fifth than we do now. And just, it, it does change your expectations a little bit. So hopefully he can kind of ease into form. Um, Seattle's in good shape. They have a solid roster without any really bad contracts, except maybe Philip Grubauer's in net. Th- that, that is a pretty big caveat, though. Yeah, that's true. Four years left at $5.9 million for a guy who even last year, when he was, like, less awful than the year before, was still not very good. Um... So, yeah, they are kind of counting on him to do it. They've got three goalies on the roster right now. Him, Chris Dreiger, and Joey Decord. 
If some combination of that gives them competent goaltending, last year showed that that can be enough. They didn't even really get competent goaltending last year. No. Well. Like, they, did, they got, like, bad goaltending, but it just wasn't, like, you know, submarine quality goaltending. Yeah, like, I can't emphasize how terrible Grubauer was in the first season of the Seattle Kraken, and yeah. it tanked the franchise. Like, just, they were not viable because of it. Um... Yeah, I don't think the team has enough real difference makers yet, and that may just have to come through the development of their prospects. I wouldn't be surprised if the Kraken put up a year much like the previous one, or even a little less, but I think that's okay. In the grand scheme, they're on the rise. Yeah, I, I would mostly agree with that. So the Kraken had kind of comically good finishing last year, and that's sort of what elevated them from average to good. Mm -hmm. They don't have a ton of players who we would recognize as great shooters, right? As you said, they don't have like a ton of obvious difference makers, but they do have some, as we cover Vince Dunn is a good shooter from the back end. Jared McCann scored 40 goals last year, will be great in Puck Doku for the rest of his life because he's been on like three different teams and he's a 40 goal scorer. So he fits into a lot of buckets. Um, it's possible that Seattle's doing something that XG isn't picking up on. You know, mm -hmm. they are reportedly a quite smart team, and I, I believe it. I have, like, a ton of respect for everyone in their front office, mm -hmm. um, a lot of whom made their name as kind of public analytics people who were just very often correct when, when offering their opinions about the NHL. Um, but I think this is something to watch in the early going, and I can see them, ha I can see them taking a backslide as a result. Like, put another way, they were, like, an average team in terms of shot and chance differential. That's got bad goaltending and had good shooting. Mm -hmm. I believe in the goaltending being bad more than I believe in the shooting being good. Mm. Yep, that's fair. Um, so we'll see. Also worth noting, I think, so we certainly didn't think Seattle handled the expansion draft that well. And I think that was a pretty common opinion across the hockey world. It seemed like they kind of overplayed their hand, waited for deals that never really materialized to avoid taking players from certain teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as it turned out, teams just dealt with each other to avoid paying very high prices to Seattle. So that led to a pretty mediocre to bad roster in year one. And more critically, and not a ton of extra assets. Mm. And then that was further undone by just like horrific goaltending that they got in the first year from Grubauer, as, as we as we covered. They, they left some good players on the table um, in the expansion draft, like Nino Niederreiter, as, as, a, as an example. Mm -hmm. Um they did get some gems. They got McCann. They got done. And since then, they've weaponized kind of the clean cap sheet that they had to acquire players like Oliver Bjorkstrand and Andre Burakovsky. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you compare to Vegas, Seattle was never going to be what Vegas was because teams had gotten smarter in, in the interim. Um, but Vegas exited the expansion draft with a roster that most thought was, like, mediocre to middling. Or, or some and, and some thought, like, not that good at all. But they had a ton of extra assets. They had like a bunch of picks that they that they acquired. And then they used those picks a lot to really aggressively add players. Seattle does not have a ton of extra picks. They have one extra pick from Toronto. Mm -hmm. And I believe that was the, uh, the Giordano trade. Yes, it was. And yeah, just to emphasize, it's a third. It's not like a... Yes, huge, it's a third. Yeah. yeah, it's not like a first rounder or anything like that. Yeah. So... What Seattle really had was just the cap space, and they've they've used it now. But now, you know, and they have a clean cap sheet going forward. But this is sort of their team until 
you know, until until the rest of their prospects really develop and they don't have a ton waiting in reserve as of right now. It's just like a solid team that does not have any huge mistakes on the roster, except possibly Grubauer. Yeah. I will say they made another really smart move that we didn't discuss um, because this was, I think, something that happened last season. They acquired uh, Eli Tolvanen. Mm, yes. And they got him on a waiver claim, did they not? They did. They did. Yeah. I, oh, man, I wanted him on a waiver claim, even though the Leafs were not really in a position to even take him. But yeah, 16 goals in 48 games for the Kraken when they picked him up. For a guy that you got basically at the side of the road, that is pretty nice. Yep. Uh, yeah, I just, um, and we will talk about Vegas and the context of their cup win. But yeah, just by comparison, Vegas was in the very special position of having almost no onerous cap commitments and a ton of assets. And they used that to move aggressively for big players again and again and again. Um, we saw that with Mark Stone and Alex Petrangelo and Jack Eichel. And it eventually added up to a cup for them. And they were in a unique position to be a hyper-aggressive team. Um, Seattle does not seem to be trying to do that, but they're also not in the position to do that in the same way. Um, doesn't mean that they're handcuffed by any means. They've got optionality. It's just it, Vegas was in a very special position. Uh, the St. Louis Blues. 81 points, 6th in the Central, 23rd in the NHL. They missed the playoffs. This one will be shorter. Departures, Logan Brown, signed with Tampa Bay, one year at 775K. Uh, I arguably could have left this off, but it's kind of interesting. Brown, who is not coincidentally 6'6", dominated junior and went 11th overall in 2016, but he's never really put it together in the NHL. By Iceless, he had a dreadful 30 games in St. Louis last year, and it's not like he was producing much either. He had six points. Maybe Tampa will get more out of him, because Tampa usually does, but he looks like a fourth liner at best, and he's 25 now. Uh, additions and extensions. The Blues traded a sixth-round pick to Philadelphia for Kevin Hayes at 50% retention. So they've got Hayes at three years at $3.5 million, give or take. Um, under I mentioned this under Philadelphia's section. I'm a little surprised that Hayes at 50% retention only commanded a sixth-round pick um, coming off a 54-point season. He's another big center. Um, the Blues are actually only losing an inch in height, so swapping Brown for Hayes. Um, but he's been productive in the NHL as a versatile forward, and I think this is a nice trade for St. Louis. It just doesn't answer any of their many larger questions. Uh, that's it. Other thoughts. Uh, the Blues are stuck. Now, they are stuck in the context of a team that won the Stanley Cup, so hey, it's not so bad, but they're stuck. They've got two good young forwards locked up for term in Jordan Cairo and Robert Thomas. But every other contract longer than two years is a term deal for a player over 30. In particular, they're paying $23.5 million combined in each of the next three seasons to a top four defense of Justin Falk, Dory Krug, Colton Pareko, and Nick Letty. And all of those guys are in varying stages of decline. Also, they're paying asshole goalie Jordan Bennington $6 million a year for the next four years. And Bennington hasn't looked worth that since, like, 2019. Um... Last year, this team was middling offensively and poor defensively. I do not see either of them improving very much. Um, so they might be good enough to stay out of the basement, but they really needed an injection of talent. And they're probably too good to draft top five without a miracle lottery win. But their cap is too clogged to be a free agency buyer. And Armstrong apparently didn't see much he liked on the trade market. 
we've seen some teams like Dallas rise back out of purgatory with big draft hits and sharp moves, but Armstrong needs a couple of those up his sleeves or this team is kind of languishing in the mushy middle. Yeah, I think they're just treading water right now. Yeah. There, there's there's players to like here. You mentioned Cairo and Thomas, but like Pavel Buchnevich is a mm. very good player. Yes. Um Jakob Vrana has some real talent. Their, their defense as you said, it's just it's just old. Mm-hmm. Right? It's old and like kind of declining a little bit. Um and yeah, I think that's just like a hard thing to to fight against. You know, you, you, I think the comparison to Dallas is a good one because this is this is like Dallas but without Jason Robertson and Miro Heisman. Yeah. yeah, like if you hit two enormous draft hits, and Robertson was just a huge hit relative to the position, and Heiskanen was, a, I think, third overall? Fourth, I believe. Fourth overall, yeah. So I don't think they'll be good enough, or sorry, bad enough, to draft a player that high. And then you're left relying on your amateur scouting. Just as an yeah, aside, I... we talked about Kasperi Kapanen. He's here now. Mm-hmm. They got him on waivers. <laughs> I think this team is just kind of aiming for the bubble maybe they sneak in maybe they don't they had a bad year last year um they had, for a while they've been sort of a shooting percentage team that really emphasizes cross ice passing really emphasizes rush chances and guys like uh, Kairu, who's one of the more underrated passers in the league played into that but certainly they had ryan o'reilly as well another great passer mm. um but yeah that dried up a bit last year right like they, they just did not convert well at all from what i remember yeah, and you know they've now unloaded Riley and Tarasenko, um, who were aging, and you know that's totally fine. But those are two guys they don't have anymore who haven't really been replaced. And yeah, I, I think that this is going to be a bit dire. The only thing that occurs to me, the Blues, in the year they won the Cup, were actually kind of scuffling for the first half of the season. Like they weren't getting the results, even though they were. They were doing some good things. And then they really turned on the Jets under Craig Barabay. Um, and then they went on a, a spectacular cup run. I wonder if this team is a bit more tolerant of lingering around the middle, hoping hoping that they get an opportunity or a big acquisition or that lightning just strikes for them. But from where I'm sitting, this team is kind of stuck. I also want to correct myself. They did they did get uh, good finishing last year not to the same degree that they had in years prior oh, okay. uh, i was conflating that with the finishing when o'reilly was on the ice specifically oh, okay so down but still respectable yes and st- still goals higher than expected goals but like since the cup win their their play driving has just like continued to get worse and worse and worse and they've relied more and more and more on the shooting and also they didn't have good goaltending either as, as you mentioned jordan binnington uh is both an asshole and apparently not a great NHL goalie anymore. Yeah, and they've still got him for turn, you know. And this team has never recovered defensively from the fact that Alex Petrangelo left, which obviously was always going to be really hard to recover from. But they seem to have decided that the way to solve that was to just give $6.5 million to everyone. I don't know why that was going to work, but it didn't. And so here we are. Um... The Tampa Bay Lightning. Departures. Alex Kaloran signed four years at $6.25 million with Anaheim. We talked about that in our very first segment on this whole series. So, Oh, wait. We, we forgot to mention one very important thing with, uh, with Tampa Bay. I forget how many points they got, but they finished yeah. third in the Atlantic. Yes. Something in the league. And then they <laughs> lost in the first round to the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> That's an excellent point. Yes, I should have included... 
our usual recap of the performance of the team involved. Yeah, so the Tampa Bay Lightning were third in the Atlantic with 98 points. Um, League-wide, that actually put them an unimpressive 13th. They were low-key, like, not as good yeah. as, <laughs> as as people thought last year. Like, they really struggled down the stretch. Yeah. And that made it, like, slightly dismaying when, like, they probably deserved better than losing in six games to Toronto because mm-hmm. I think they were the better team in that playoff series for the most part. Yeah. I'll say this. I think the Leafs were the better team in 2022. So, I agree. You know, right? no Deser- deserving that- sports. Exactly. Yeah. Um. Yeah, sorry. So, uh, I should have mentioned that's where they were, but you know where Tampa is. You see them enough. Alex Kaloran signed four years of $6.25 million with Anaheim. Um, as I mentioned, I think Tampa Bay is right to let that deal go, given Kaloran's age and his overall track record. Um, he still gave them 64 points last year, though, and now he's gone. So they are going to miss him in that sense. Um, sometimes when you're capped out, you have the choice between passing or being unable to sign a bad deal and just getting worse. And I think that's kind of what happened. Um, also departing, Ian Cole, a year and $3 million with the Vancouver Canucks. Cole was a remarkably good shutdown defender for Tampa Bay last year at age 34. Like, way better than I expected. He was on their shutdown pairing with Eric Chernak. Uh, I think, again, Tampa will miss him. But it seems only fair to note that I didn't expect Ian Cole to be as good as he was for them. And Tampa's overall strength in pro scouting certainly deserve our respect. So maybe they'll put this together with what they've got. Uh, they traded forward Ross Colton to Chicago for a 2023 second round pick, and then Colton signed four years at $4 million. Again, Colton was one of this endless string of strong complementary forwards that Tampa seems to grow in a lab. Uh, he was dogged on the forecheck with 20 goal potential. This deal was a bit rich, but once again, the fact that someone else probably overpaid him doesn't change the fact that Tampa no longer has him. Uh, they traded Corey Perry to Chicago for a 2024 seventh, and then Perry signed for a year at $4 million. Good for Tampa Bay for getting an asset out of this, because Perry was about to go unrestricted like four days later. Um, Perry is a fourth liner with modest second power play utility, and giving him $4 million would be actually insane for any team that cared about cap hits, which Chicago currently does not. But, like, there was no universe where Tampa Bay was going to give him anything close to this. Um... They traded Patrick Maroon at 20% retention, bringing Maroon down to $800,000, and an ECHL forward named Maxim Kachkovich uh, to Minnesota for a 2024-7. It's a tiny amount of money. I'm a little surprised that the Bolts, who are always like $1 under the salary cap, retained anything on this deal, um, rather than just demote Maroon to the AHL. But maybe they were trying to do a favor for a veteran. I feel like that has to be it. Yeah. Um, you know, and he's been a good soldier for them for a while. Anyway, he's a fringe NHLer at this point. Um, and then Belmar, I already talked about in our Seattle segment. I don't think he's a huge loss at this stage of his career. Okay, additions and extensions. They're always doing something. Even when the, the Bolts look handcuffed, they are always making moves. Uh, they signed forward Connor Sheary, three years at $2 million. He's a fast, energetic winger who's good for about 15, 20 goals a year. And this is a reasonable price to pay for that service. The end. Uh, they signed defenseman Calvin DeHaan, a year at 775 k He is a competent third-pair defenseman. I'm curious how high Tampa Bay intends to play him. At his peak, he was a second-pairing guy, but that was a few years ago, and he's now 32. But I wonder if they do 
think he has reclamation value and they can get more out of him. Again, sort of like Ian Cole. Um, I don't think DeHaan is as good, but who knows? Uh, they signed forwards Luke Glendening and forward Josh Archibald and forward Logan Brown. Glendening got two years at 800k. Archibald, as I told you, decided not to play. And Brown got a year at 775. You know, all fourth liners, they might provide some modest improvement uh, on the over the departing maroon Belmar Perry line. No real difference makers unless Logan Brown suddenly puts it all together. Uh, they extended Tanner Janot, uh two years at 2.665 million. The Bolts paid like the craziest pick price I've ever seen to add him at the deadline, and so far that looks like a massive overpay. Uh, he's a tough forechecking winger with a bit of scoring touch, and that's an archetype that serves Tampa very well. So we'll see if he breaks out next season or if his one productive year, 24 goals in 2021-22, was a flash in the pan caused by whatever ritual Nashville did to get scoring that season. Because everyone on Nashville seemed to have a peak year that year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that Jano pretty immediately suffered an injury. Yes, um, yeah. So, you know, Jerry's still out on him, but... And also worth noting that, like, the thing that was said with Jano is like, oh, five picks, but, like, a lot of those picks were not that good. Yeah. Um, it was still too much. It was still opinion, too much, but, yeah. But it's not, like, yes. yeah. It's not but, totally uh, this, this extension seems kind of fine. Yeah, it's definitely this contract I don't... I don't have any objections to it. And the pick cost is sunk. Like wh whether it was right or wrong, it already happened. So from where they're sitting, yeah, just extend them. Uh, speaking of extensions, Brandon Hagel, eight years at 6.5 million. And that's future dated starting in 2024. Um, the Bolts very clearly believe that it's best for them to lock up their complimentary pieces for maximum term in a rising cap contest. Uh, they've done it again. Um, Hagel had 30 goals, 34 assists, 64 points last year, writing shotgun mostly to Brandon Point and Nikita Kucherov. He is, as usual, a gritty, determined winger with scoring touch, and he should fill that slot very nicely. I do wonder a bit about his actual skill level, but the thing is, is that he's clearly very good as a complimentary player to those star players, and Tampa's going to be running those out for quite some time. So, I think that as long as Tampa's trying to contend with this core, and they should be, complementary pieces that fit well with them and produce at this rate are very much worth it. You can sort of see an interesting future taking shape for Tampa Bay down the line. Like, they're not anywhere near a Pittsburgh scenario yet, but they have a lot of these term contracts where I'm like, I'm curious as to how that's going to look four or five years in the future when you're no longer able to count on Kucherov and had been carrying you to quality. Um, and maybe in a rising cap context, these deals don't look that bad. Or maybe these guys do more. But yeah, it's just interesting because they have now a lot of money locked up for term. Yes, I, they've done this, as you said, with like basically everyone who they see as part of their next core. Yeah, uh, just uh, to note, um, guys who are still signed at least as far as 2028... Include Braden Point, Anthony Cirelli, Nicholas Paul, and Brandon Hagel, Mikhail Sergachev, and Eric Chernak. Um, interesting. Anyway, moving right along. Um, I feel like the, the big issue there is I just don't, as you said, like, I don't think the high-end juice is there. No. The only one of those guys who has ever really been a genuine star player is Braden Point. Right. 
It's like, how many of those guys could you see winning a major end-of-season award? Yeah. I can see Point winning a Selkie. Yeah. There was a time uh, in his uh, career well, where... Sorelli yeah. could win a Selkie as well. Yeah. There was a time in his career where we would have said Sturgachev could be like a fringe Norris contender. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, But if they get more out of him down the line, maybe it's okay. And again, they're clearly counting on a big cap increase, I think. Like, they think that it there's going to be a point where these deals don't look nearly as big as they do now. And maybe it works to their advantage. Also, even if that's not true, like... I don't know how many times you're going to have four Hall of Famers on your roster at once. Right. So, go for it every single year. Mm-hmm. Um, Tampa Bay is still a good team. They should still be a playoff team. No one will want to face them in the playoffs. Uh, Victor Hedman still scares the shit out of me. I will sleep when he's dead. Because he is still very dangerous in the playoffs, even after a year of decline. Um... I still trust this team collectively to raise this game when the playoffs come. But this team has had a gradual drain of talent. And their only real way to replace it is to consistently find gems with nearly the best pro scouting in the league. They have had good pro scouting. They've done a really good job. But they're not infallible. And as a result, I think they're sort of sliding back towards the pack. I would put them in the second tier of contenders where they could win the cup next year, but they're a little worse than last year when they were a little worse than the year before. And I think that that's sort of the general trend in Tampa Bay. Again, unless they get like a Jason Robertson level hit, which is going to be hard for them because they barely even draft anymore. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. Those were five teams. So the Toronto Maple Leafs, Um, we already covered in our segment about them earlier this summer. So there's a whole episode devoted to them. Not too much has happened since, except they signed Ilya Samsonov out of arbitration and Martin Jones to be their possibly third string goalie. So we won't do much there. And I will now finally... Well, and and also Austin Matthews. Yeah, well, I mean, who is he? He's probably not important. But we talked about him in uh, the start of our last episode. So... It's all covered elsewhere, so we won't rehash it. I will just say I think that the Leafs are a second-tier contender, and I might pick them to finish at the top of a crowded Atlantic division. Yeah, betting markets have them as like kind of fourth, fifth best team in the league behind, um, in some order. I forget exactly what order. I think Colorado, uh, New Jersey, Carolina, and then like Vegas, Toronto, and Edmonton are kind of that next group. Yeah, and Vegas will have to be in there somewhere, right? Oh yeah, yeah, Vegas. Yeah. Too. Um, but yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's talk about a team that is not in that group at all, the Vancouver Canucks. <laughs> 83 points, 6th in the Pacific, um, 22nd in the league, did not make the playoffs. So who has left this team? Uh, Ethan Bear, currently unsigned. Kyle Burrows, we covered in San Jose, kind of a rugged depth defenseman who is not that great, given that he was on Vancouver. Uh, the big one is Oliver ekman Larson. He was bought out and signed in Florida for a year, $2.25 million. This results in a small cap charge for Vancouver for this year, $2.3 million next year, $4.7 million for two years after that, and $2.1 million for two years after that. So this is not a painless buyout by any stretch. Um, closes the book on just a brutal trade for them. Yeah. Um, we said, like, OEL is 
not worth what they're giving up for him. I think we were still gentler on the trade than maybe we should have been because we thought highly of Connor Garland. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the OEL end of it looked bad and has clearly proven to be one of the worst moves of Jim Benning's pretty questionable tenure. It's a real shame because um, OEL, you know, 2017, I think, was like one of the best defensemen in the league and was actually like a you know, kind of an un- uh, kind of a secret around the yeah. league. People didn't realize how good he was, um, but that didn't last very long. I think he had some injury issues, which really like robbed him of, uh, you know, the best facets of his game. And he just has not been worth his deal for a while. And Vancouver paid the price on that. So this sort of sucks for them, but probably better to cut bait on it. Now it clearly wasn't going to happen in Vancouver. Um, Ekman Larson signing for one year, 2.25 in Florida is kind of about where he is right now. Right. Mm. Like, so yeah, that's that's that. Like he's uh, making addition- significantly less than Justin Hall in both term and dollars. So yeah, yeah exactly. There's your, your answer. So addition to the extensions, uh, most of these are pretty minor. Uh, Vancouver didn't do a heck of a lot. Uh, Noah Jolson, two years, seven seventy five k. Debated whether even to add that or not because it's not that significant. Ian Cole, a uh, one year, three million. So I-, I describe Ian Cole as like a league average defenseman. He was much better than league average last year for Tampa Bay. Mm-hmm. So much so that I don't believe it was entirely him (laughs) yes and i'll go Um, a step further and say that however much of it was the tampa bay lightning the vancouver canucks are not as good (laughs) correct that said the canucks defense was really bad last year and has been just like an issue for a while so getting someone who i think is competent will help cole is uh older Mm -hmm. i think he's like 33 or 34 now yeah he's uh he's well up there in age 34 yeah so like, that's why he only gets a year coming off a very strong year for a good team in Tampa Bay. Um, but I, I think he'll, like, stabilize things a little bit. Carson Soucy we covered before uh, from, C- I think, Seattle. Uh, I think he's another league average defenseman. He's played in more limited roles on other teams, certainly compared to Cole. Cole was kind of like a tough minutes guy for, for Tampa Bay last year, it, that people which people didn't totally recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is kind of another test from the Isle of Shelter third-pairing guys. There's some things to like in Susie's um, statistical profile. So I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic that this is like a, a solid signing. I, I don't think it's a little spicy if he ends up just being a third pairing guy. But I, I think there's some confidence he can at least kind of be a Justin Hall type. Uh, you can play him on your second pair and he won't be a disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, Teddy Bluger uh, was signed for one year just shy of $2 million. Solid defensive forward, and you can sense a bit of a theme here with what Vancouver was trying to do. Uh, and then last couple signings were Pi Suter, two years, one point six million; Niels Hoglander, two years, one point one million. And this one happened in January twenty twenty three, but it's the most significant of these, so I wanted to include it. Uh, Andre Kuzmenko, two years, five and a half million. So Kuzmenko was an older rookie; he's twenty seven, and he scored, I think, like close to forty goals last year. Maybe he got forty goals. He had um, the highest shooting percentage in the league yes. of any player who played significant minutes. And yes, he had 39 goals. So uh, part of how good this deal is is dependent on how real his shot is. Um, his numbers are pretty solid. It's not like he's kind of a dominant Kubalik type where he's just a shot and nothing else. Or like Martin Furk, which is like the much lower end version of that. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of interesting. I mean... If you're Vancouver, you, you don't really want to sign him long because he's not actually like that young and you actually have no idea how good he is in the NHL because he has not played that many games. Yeah. 
for Kuzmenko, it's kind of similar because the market doesn't truly believe he, you know, in what he was last year. But he doesn't want to sign a long-term deal because then he'll be on the market when he's like 31, 32, and he won't get a, a long-term deal off that. So something to get him out on the market before his 30s is probably an important thing. This is a short deal. It's pretty hard for it to turn into an albatross. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's kind of actually just seems like a reasonable deal for both sides in my best Pierre Lebrun impression. Yeah, it does. Um, just something I wanted to note. His personal shooting percentage last year was 27.3%. Um, yeah, that's coming down. That is coming down. The very highest shooting percentage that you can realistically sustain if you're very, very, very good is about 20%. Over the, That's like Leon Dreisaitl, basically. Yes, I was going to mention. Over the last three years, Leon Dreisaitl is 19.9. Um, and the guys who hit 20% on a consistent basis are either guys who basically never shoot, like um, Alex Tangay is the classic example, or guys who are just exceptional superstar shooters, like Dreisaitl. Um, so Kuzmenko is not going to do this again, but he can do less than that and still be a very good player. And yes, exactly. that's what Vancouver is hoping for. And yeah, I think this is a reasonable deal with that in mind. So Vancouver's just in a weird spot. They're just like a, an average-ish, below-average team. And that's kind of a problem because they've been trying to be good for a while. Yes. And they, they therefore have like an, an average pipeline, right? An average amount of picks and... This is just, like, not a great spot to be in. Also a problem because they've been capturing a ton of value on their top players, Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson. Pettersson's making $7.35 million. This is the last year of his deal. He was probably a top 10 skater in the world last year. Mm-hmm. So this is, like, an immense value deal, and they're still pretty bad. Yes, and Pettersson is currently not willing to extend with the Vancouver Canucks. And by all accounts, it's because he wants to see if this team can contend or at least show some signs of progress. Right. So Vancouver's doing this thing where like, they have to kind of chase Pedersen. Like, you don't get a player like Elias Pedersen that often. No. Even getting him fifth overall in the draft where they did was remarkable. Yes, that was a great pick. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I mean, we're going to see about that. Uh, Sabres Kevin, friend of the podcast, has mentioned to me that he thinks that Vancouver is approaching its Eichel situation where they are going to have to face up to possibly trading a player of this caliber while they can still get value for him because he's going to expire RFA. So if he refuses to extend with them, next summer is probably the time. Um, A big thing that I want to mention about Vancouver they famously changed coaches last year from Bruce Boudreaux to Rick Tockett. Um, they did it in a very clumsy, classically Vancouver manner where everybody knew Boudreaux was going to get fired, but they let him twist in the wind for a month. Um, allegedly, that was due to Rick Tockett's notice period with his prior employer, which was a broadcaster. But Bruce Boudreaux, and look, I love Bruce. We all love Bruce. It's very hard not to love him. He's a lovable man. But he is famously kind of a let-the-horses-run offensive coach. He lets his players kind of do their thing and trusts them for that. When you have the horses, sometimes that's not a bad way to be. Vancouver did not have the horses, and so let-the-horses-run wound up looking a bit like let-the-horses-pee all over the place. Um, Rick Tockett is famously very disciplined, defensively sound, very much believes in imposing structure. 
which this team probably desperately needed. And so if you want to be optimistic about Vancouver, and that's a challenge given how the last decade has gone for them, you might say, look, we've got some defensively sound additions, Ian Cole, Carson Soucy, um, and most of all, we've got Rick Tockett, who might impose some discipline on this team, get them and Thatcher Demko back on track, and this team starts to look respectable in the Pacific Division. Um They've been trying to make the playoffs in defiance of their actual team quality for years now. Now they kind of have to do it because they have to convince Elias Patterson that it's worth extending. Yes. And yeah, it's very hard to to say, oh, you should trade this guy who you've watched blossom into one of the best players in the league. Mm-hmm. But like that might be where this ends up in a year. Patterson will fetch an absolute mint on the trade market, by the way, like Players like that just don't get traded all that often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he'll be... Especially at his age. Yeah, at his age. He's a franchise center. Now, whoever will sign him, sorry, will trade for him, will want to sign him. And so mm-hmm. it, if it does come to that, there'll be an expectation of an extension. But yeah, obviously Vancouver is hoping to avoid that choice entirely. And the best situation is they make the playoffs. Pedersen is over the moon with their progress and he signs an eight-year deal. Um. Yeah. Grim times in Vancouver, though. <laughs> it's always kind of Very grim. much so. Yeah. Um, okay, the Vegas Golden Knights. They f- finished with 111 points. First in the Pacific. Fifth in the league. They won the Stanley Cup. Uh, so departures. They lost Riley Smith, as mentioned. Traded to Pittsburgh for a third-round pick. Total cap dump. Hurts. That's the cost of doing business as a contender. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lawrence, Laurent, sorry, Brassois. Signed one by 1.75 in Winnipeg. Jonathan Quick, as we covered last uh, last episode, signed one by 825K in New York. These were, so uh, Vegas lost two goalies here, but they were their two worst goalies, so it's not a big deal. And Teddy Bluger signed, as we just covered, one, point, one by 1.9 million in Vancouver. Not a lot of uh, additions and extensions for Vegas. They re-signed Aiden Hill, their, their cup-winning goalie. Two years, 4.9 million per year. Seems like a fine contract for a solid goalie, at least last year. Hill's track record before last year was pretty minimal, so there's some risk here, as we've covered. You cannot price out risk uh, in this tier for, for goaltenders. Like you, You're just not going to get a, a no-doubt-about-it guy. Mm-hmm. Um, the risk here is more that Hill isn't good and Sewer is a repeat run, as opposed to Hill isn't good and becomes an albatross contract. This is a two-year deal. It's not going to be a massive issue long-term, mm-hmm. but it's just like how good will Hill be next year, right? Uh, they also have Logan Thompson behind him, who has been fine in a backup role in his career thus far. So that's a little bit of, insur- of insurance. And, you know, you can you can always, like, cobble together uh, another backup goalie if you need to in the trade market. Vegas has proven that. Yeah, like, they're just... I mean, what stands out about Vegas is their extraordinary aggressiveness as a front office. Like, um, like no team I've seen in the cap era just goes for it and moves and makes deals and chases star players and turns through goalies and just keeps kind of attacking um, to put itself in a contending position. And they've never not been a cup contender, like in any year of their existence. They missed the playoffs once because they got tanked by injuries. But yeah, just, you know, ruthless and not exactly warm and fuzzy, but at the same time, they've got a ring. Yep. Um, they re-signed... Ivan Barbashev, five years, five million. So this is pretty obviously the long-term Riley Smith replacement. Mm-hmm. 
this might have some capacity to age badly. Um, Barbashev was good in the playoffs. Maybe that's his true level, you know, once he got to a good team. But his time in St. Louis was just, like, competent depth guy, like, not remotely worth this. I've never been that impressed watching him, except for when he, like, scores goals, which he did a decent amount in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm not at all convinced by this contract. Yeah, he had, like, a weird 60-point season for St. Louis um, a couple years back. And it's like, well, you know he has that potential. And, you know, if he, if he reaches that potential semi-consistently, this is a great deal. But I, I would not bet on that. He is. He does bring a physical element, yeah. a forechecking element to to a team, which which I think has value, and teams do value. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. but I'm just not totally convinced in this in this contract or by this contract. Um, but on the whole, this is a team that is pretty unchanged from last year, and they were a contender who won the Stanley Cup, so pretty good. They weren't like a dominant Cup winner, you know. I don't think this is a team that's going to be talked about. The same way the 2007 Red Wings are talked about, the same way that the 2010 Blackhawks are talked about, you know, or even the Tampa or Colorado teams of more recent vintage. But they're just like a, a you know, a standard, solid cup winning team, which is, you know, a very, very good team. Um, they're just led by a veritable army of good, not great players. And this is probably the exception to the idea that you need truly elite talent at the top level to win a cup. Some people would classify guys like Petrangelo and Eichel and Stone as that. They certainly have been at various points of their career. Mm -hmm. But I don't think any of them are in the top five of their position right now. Yeah, I, I would say that that's fair. They're, they're all like... Yeah, they are in a very strange position because all of those guys I would say have been... I would say Eichel has been a top 10 center at his peak. Stone has been mm -hmm. a top five winger at his peak. Petrangelo has been a top five defenseman at his peak, but none of them currently are. Right. Um, but like where this team really excels is they have guys like Chandler Stevenson and William Carrier mm -hmm. who, who just kick ass in the roles that they're in. And to that end, like this team's window might be a little tighter than you think mm -hmm. because a lot of their best deals like Stevenson, like William Carrier, like Jonathan Marcheseau, are expiring this year and are going to be hard to retain for the same prices. Mm -hmm. So I think they're going to be worse next um, next year, meaning 24-25, than they are this year. But flags fly forever, and they have a totally respectable chance to repeat. And no team is going to want to face these guys in the playoffs. Yeah, that's that's very true. Uh, I, I guess um, maybe something to mention, just playing off what you said. The huge boost that they got from their expansion draft where they had a maybe more favorable construction than people realized at the time and kind of swindled the NHL. That is probably going to end as of next summer. Like right now they've still got March so and William Carrier. Um, they've still got two years of Braden McNabb, but they've got um, still some of those guys that they originally acquired, but gradually that advantage is tailing off. They no longer have, that wealth of draft picks. So they have the team that they built that way to some extent with all the assets that they cashed in. But that huge boost is about to peter out. And now we're going to see, can they keep making these aggressive moves without those advantages? But yeah, yeah, I mean, they're the best team in the Pacific division. I think it's them or Edmonton and I'll never quite take Edmonton seriously until they make me. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Washington capitals. Um, 80 points. 
I said six in the Pacific in my notes, but I think that means six in the Metro, <laughs> 25th in the league, and missed the playoffs. Um, people didn't realize how bad Washington was last year. They stank. Yeah, the, the end has come for this team, yeah. I think. Um, they lost Connor Brown, signed at Edmonton for 1x775K with uh, 3.225 uh, million of performance bonuses. Connor Sherry, who we discussed, signed in Tampa Bay for three years, $2 million. Lost another couple competent depth guys who I didn't bother to mention. Um, who did they add? Not a whole lot of people. Really, two additions. One is Max Pacioretty. One year, $2 million, An additional $2 million in performance bonuses. This is kind of similar to the deal that Connor Brown signed in Edmonton. Different split of base salary to performance bonus. And I think Pacioretty has more upside because he was a better player than, than Connor Brown. Mm-hmm. And that's no disrespect to Connor Brown. Just Pacioretty is very good. Mm-hmm. And then sort of weirdly, Joel Edmondson um, <laughs> traded with... One by 3.5 left on his deal to Washington for a third and a seventh. Montreal uh, retained 50%. I just don't think he's very good. No. Not at hockey. No. And then the big extension that happened, which I think is just insane. (laughs) Tom Wilson signed extension starting next year. So not this year. It's future dated. Seven years, six and a half million. Yeah. This just has enormous disaster potential. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know what? And everyone who's defending it is like, whatever, nerds. Wilson won a cup. This is what you need to win with in the playoffs. He's tough. He's gritty. He'll take your fucking head off. All this sort of stuff. I look at this and I'm like, this is the Milan Lucic contract. Yeah. This is it again. And watch what happened to Lucic after age 30. Well, it's like... Look, I could. Buy, you need a guy like Wilson in the playoffs. The Caps aren't fucking making the playoffs. <laughs> That's the other thing is if they were in Pittsburgh's position where like they were even sort of a more credible threat, or or like Vegas's position where it's like, yeah, look, we gotta do this now because this is it, and we're gonna keep taking chances. You would get it with Washington. It's like, not only is like. I'm not saying it's impossible. Hockey's a crazy game and they aren't actively bad enough to guarantee it. But look at how many teams they would have to be better than to make the playoffs. It's a lot. And they weren't better than a lot of them last year. And a lot of the ones that they're kind of contending with improved. Whereas the Caps, I don't think, did. Not to any significant degree. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, So Wilson also, you know, missed a lot of last season due to recovery from an ACL injury. Mm Mm-hmm. He played okay in terms of scoring when he was on the ice, but his defensive results were awful. Mm-hmm. He's 29 currently. This deal starts when he's 30. The, the, the reason I don't like this deal is because I think the best case scenario is he's worth this deal for two years and then not worth it for four oh, yeah. or five. And then the worst case scenario is he is not worth it immediately, and then you have seven years of that. Now, the one thing I will say, if Wilson becomes not worth it, I am so confident that they can LTIR him. Oh, yeah. Not even a question. And, you know, maybe they're fine with that. Um, Also, yeah, like if you ask me what my median expectation for Wilson next year is, it's that he gets like 50 points. And maybe even someone writes a sarcastic article about like, see, he's great. Um, But yeah, like as a rational decision for a team that is trying to win Stanley Cups, this is stupid. Um. For a team in the Caps position. That said, the Caps are in a unique position as a franchise that no other team is in. Mm -hmm. They're neither trying to contend per se, 
nor rebuilding, per se. Their objective is to get Alex Ovechkin the all-time goals record. Pretty much. And, you know, the rest of their cup team is sort of falling apart. Mm -hmm. Um, Nick Backstrom had a phenomenal career, but he's just not it anymore. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's a miracle that he came back to play it all last season. And credit to him for that. But, yeah. Yes, and this is a a team that's just trying to get Ovechkin, who still is, you know, he's clearly not the player he was at his peak, but is still a good goal scorer, the the goals record. And he's probably two to three seasons away from it. Mm -hmm. And I think they're just kind of playing the hits and biding time while that happens. Yeah. And, you know, it'll be interesting. They could... I I think he's certainly a very reasonable threat to do it. Um, He's aged better than I at all expected. He still had 42 goals last year which is remarkable. It's just, I keep thinking he's at the age range now where he can wake up one morning and just not be good anymore. I like, I watched that happen to, you know, Jerome McGinley or, or great players like that. And so that's, that's really what it could look like, but yeah, he's a threat to do that. The caps as a whole are not a threat to do anything, but yep. I, I agree. Uh, things are going to get worse before they get better, but this is like sort of by design for this team. Yeah. Um, so not too much else to discuss, but the Wilson contract is still insane. Oh, yeah. Okay, last and not least, but kind of close to least, <laughs> at least in our hearts. Not great. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> Winnipeg. Winnipeg was actually decent last year. They had 95 points, fourth in the Pacific, 14th in the league, lost in round one to Vegas. Um, departures, Pierre-Luc Dubois. Uh, we covered him when we talked about L.A. He was traded for Gabe Velarde, Alex Iafalo, and Rasmus Kaperi. Um, so those are the additions to this team. We talked about all of them when we talked about L.A. But basically, Iafalo is a consistent second, third line tweener. Velarde has the biggest upside of these players, probably an above average player already at age 23, and flashes some real defensive skill. Uh, and also a pretty good shooter from what we've seen in his career thus far. So I think I think he's a good player. Mm-hmm. Um, Rasmus Kaperi, less promising than Filardi, just kind of another, just a guy, young player. They also got a 2024 second rounder. Um, on this trade, I think the Jets did okay. But like, it's a kind of bad process, good result. Mm. <laughs> and what I mean by that is like, it's bad that they keep finding themselves in situations where these players want to leave. But they handle that situation reasonably well. They, they extracted good value out of out of Dubois. Maybe they're used to it. Yes. <laughs> um, now, uh, kind of along the same lines, Blake Wheeler signed one year by 800K in New York after getting bought out. Yeah. Um, so this this the buyout is a 2.75 million cap charge for both this season and next season. And again, like it, we, Wheeler's clearly he was he was not worth his uh, his deal. Right, he's really struggled uh, as a play driver in the last couple years, from what I recall. But he's still, you know, very talented as a passer, and as you covered, he's enormous and still like a rugged force uh, at times. Mm-hmm. But this just seemed like a completely toxic situation, and that's why they bought him out. It wasn't really contract motivated. No, I mean they stripped him of the captaincy coming into last year. Yeah, um, and it was under the new coach Rick Bounas, and I think everyone was convinced that he had sort of fixed things for them for a few months. But by the end of this year, you know, he was calling them out in the press. Players were mad about it. And I think like during their exit interview or like after they lost to Vegas, there, there was like another war of words between Wheeler and, uh, and bonus. It's like, it's just like a not so quiet feud. 
Yeah, and you know, I, I hate to say it because this is going to sound like I'm picking on Winnipeg, but here's the reality. They are always going to be one of the least desirable destinations in terms of geography. It's just yeah. the weather sucks and it's not a great place to live a lot of the year. Well, the, the weather sucks and let's for for most for for a lot of players, it's Winnipeg's just like one of the smallest cities. Yeah, like it's not like it's a party city to compare with Los Angeles. You, you know? You get all the scrutiny of a Canadian market, mm-hmm. bad weather, and a, a place that people are not that jacked up to live in, at least by reputation. Now, maybe when, you know, maybe Winnipeg's much nicer than I'm giving it credit for, and I'm re- I'm not trying to take a shot at Winnipeg as a city here at all. Like, I'm sure it's a great place to live in for a lot of people, and a lot of people very fondly call it home. But for the average NHL player, it's it's probably not that great for them. Yeah. And the one other disadvantage of it is for a lot of Americans, they just don't really want to live in Canada. No. It, like, right? it's like not every, home to them. Almost yeah. every Canadian team is on a bunch of no-trade lists just because it's in Canada. And a lot of American players, and frankly, probably a lot of Canadian players who enjoy living in America, just don't really want to go to Canada and don't really want to have to deal with always having to travel across the border and always having to have family come across the border. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that to counter all those obstacles that you're already confronting, putting aside the fact that the team is never in a totally secure financial situation. Now, I mean, Mark Chipman is a billionaire, so to some extent it's based on his willingness to feel good spending money. Well, and but... Isn't like their owner like one of the 50 richest people in the world or something like that? Like he's like a baron or something yeah. <laughs> from like a baron fram- a family. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like it's perception. The team as it in terms of itself as an entity is always going to be probably close to the margin in terms of revenue in costs out. If he's willing to take losses on occasion, that's not a big deal. And I don't think Winnipeg has been handcuffed by an unwillingness to spend. Like they're close to being a cap team again this year. But when you have these disadvantages based on geography and your desirability is a free agent destination, one of the ways in which you might counter that is your team culture as being perceived as like a very good environment as a team, like an admired coach, admired players, like a situation that you'd want to be in. So, you know, even if the weather sucks outside and you're traveling a lot, if it's a good dressing room and you feel like you're maximizing your potential and you're contending, that can counteract some of it. And you'll get players who might be more willing to commit. The Jets have been stuck in the mushy middle for years now, have a horribly toxic dressing room by everything that leaks out of it, or at least did. Um, And that puts them in a really challenging position. And now they've got Mark Shifley and Connor Hellebuck. Hellebuck has already said basically like he's not resigning here. Although there's been some discussion of like, oh, maybe he's open to something now, but yeah, like it's... I'm not sure I want to sign Connor Hellebuck for his next deal. That's the other thing is now I'm sure that they're trying to maximize return as much as anything. And if I were them, I would leak. Oh, maybe he'll resign here just to try and improve my bargaining position. But realistically, from the perspective of Kevin Sheveldayoff, who is still the only GM that these Jets have ever had, um, I need to get a return now and I need to get a return on Shifley. 
Like, I do not think that you can afford to let these guys walk because you're already so up against it in free agency. Like, it's not like you're doing a lot with the money you free up. Right. The the tricky thing for, from their perspective is, like, this is probably still a decent team next year. Mm-hmm. They don't have any horrific contracts, really. No. The, like, they, they, ha- they have some talent. They don't need to burn it to the ground to make the next good Jets team. Like, they might be decent next year, and having Hellbuck is a big advantage because he's he's pretty good. But, like, where are you leading towards with that? Mm-hmm. Because right? yeah. if you sign Connor Hellebuck for what he's going to want, I don't think that deal's going to age well. No. Right? He's already 30, I believe. Yeah, and, you know, looking at this, it's like, yeah, of course, they could end up on the right side of the playoff cut line. They did last year. But, like, is this team going to make a serious run? Well, they'll upset somebody, maybe, if Hellebuck stands on his head, which he can do. But that's it. This team doesn't have serious championship aspirations. And so you have to think, how do we position ourselves to the point of getting them? And the way to do that, I think, is take a step back and unload Shifley and Hellebuck, even though it's painful. But they've got to do it, and they've got to get a good return. Yeah, like, I I don't think they need to raise this to the ground, right? No. Like, Kyle Connor or Nick Eaters, they can stick around. They can be part of the next really good team. But I think, like... they have the they have the bones to actually do a, a one to two year retool. Yeah, they do. Now that said, I'm sure it's at least crossed Jevil Dayoff's mind. Okay, say I trade Shifley and Hellebuck, the team, partly due to that exodus of talent, misses the playoffs next year. Now I've got Nick Ehlers and Alex Iafalo and Nate Schmidt and Neil Pionk um, all expiring. Now granted those defensemen especially, maybe you're not that fussed about it, but it's like, now I'm in the same situation again. Do I have to trade them? Or do I have to maximize? And it, partly that's a consequence of them taking older assets back in some of these trades. But I'm sure that they do also fear a scenario where they're constantly dealing out t- players to avoid being caught losing them in free agency. It, it's just, a, it's a challenging situation where you're not sure you can extend too many guys. Mm-hmm. You know? I like I, don't, I I say this with some sympathy, because, like, it's... I think general managing is to, in Winnipeg is to some extent doing it on hard mode, except for the yeah, fact that Shevel Jayoff can seemingly never get fired, so that part's easy. Right. Yeah. I, well, I, I guess, like... The, the Jets have been dealt a pretty tough hand, mm-hmm. and their team in some ways, has been they can disarray with just, like, a lot of guys with one foot out the door, and they don't help themselves in that manner by, like, I don't know. Like, it just seems weird that this has happened so often with, like, so many players that it's, like, ended sort of acrimoniously. Yeah. Right? Like, you go back to, like, Jacob Truba. P- Patrick Laine. Right? Yeah, Laine was traded for Dubois, who also was like, ah, eh, fuck, I don't want to be here. And now Wheeler, your longtime captain... It's like feuding with your coach. Some of this is unavoidable. The Truba stuff was mostly, I think, location. Yeah, but with the Wheeler thing, it's like he famously committed to be a pillar of this franchise in Winnipeg. And like they were rightly very proud of that. Like he was their guy. And now this relationship is ending. You know, sometimes when we get all caught up in numbers, we can be a little bit maybe less focused on that relationship building stuff, but Winnipeg needs it. It's probably more important to them than any other team. And so having a, a franchise player or the closest thing they've ever had to one leave in, under those circumstances, that's 
uh, a hit to your credibility. It really For is. sure. And yeah. you again, comparing to, for example, another team that is, is derided as like not a great place or not, not, not a place that is like necessarily super attractive to people, Columbus. Mm-hmm. Columbus has had a hard time attracting people with the exception of, of Johnny Gaudreau. But when they get there, they tend to like it, it seems. Yeah, I mean, it, it's varied. They had the um, the issue with Panarin, the, Panarin and uh, yeah. Bobrovsky, who I'm not sure they're too sorry that they missed out on, actually. But, uh, yeah, but yeah, they've at least shown, shown some capacity to retain. They're building a core there that maybe looks like it could be something. Winnipeg, I do... It, it just feels like they could keep riding this carousel where they sometimes get over the playoff cut line and sometimes finish just short of it. And they bounce between 85 and 98 points over and over again. And that is like actually kind of a grim place to be because you wake up in 10 years and your team has like one random playoff series win. Um, I wonder what that's like. Yes, I wonder what that is like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I I think uh, Winnipeg's in a tough spot, basically. Yeah. Best of luck to them. Anyway, yeah, my, my finishing takeaway would be like, for the love of God, trade Shifley and Hellebuck. Do not keep yeah. them for the sake of making a quote-unquote run with this team that is not actually going to do much. I would agree with you, but I think Winnipeg will not. Yep. <laughs> All right, so that wraps up our NHL offseason uh, reviews. So thank you all for sticking with us for six hours or so of content. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. You can catch all of Mindfulman's future work at pensionfanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Thank you for listening. We'll see you around.